Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Today on episode four of This Spiritual Fix, we're talking about some of the major sects of meditation that are popular as well as the three major categories of meditation. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Fiddler. And Christina Wilson. All right. So today on this spiritual fix, we are going to be talking about different types of meditation. We are. Well, I am. (laughs) And you have done a lot of different types of meditation. And so I think it's really important uh, that you uh, obviously put in all of your different types because what you spent time at an Osho temple in India, right? And then you and I obviously met at Vipassana, and you've done just as many different meditation types as I have. I kind of think that this is important to do because we can go into depth about any of these different types of meditations that we've done or that we've we've like experienced or that we've seen or that we've known other people to. And it gets really, really confusing when you get into this world. And I, I don't actually know what it's called, but I'm sure there's some sort of like spiritual whitewashing, you know, like there's green wash and there's all these different types of washes in which like everything jumps on the bandwagon. I read a statistic that said that in 2015, the meditation segment alone market of was the new worth age self-help right was worth 959 million a year and it's been growing it's it's basically targeted to be at 2.08 billion by 2021 so basically a year from now and i'm sure and that number was like from 2019 that was pre-pandemic and i can only imagine that that stuff has just skyrocket like has grown even more than the 11 percent a year that it was right which is great we need more meditation i agree i agree i think I'm always in favor of saying, actually, look at the good side, which is that people are looking to meditation and they're looking to actually like look at their minds. And that's really, really great. There's also the setbacks of like, there's probably going to be a lot of dead ends in there. There's probably going to be a lot of like bum things that you can do. And commercialism and false advertising. Ultimately, whether it's in this life or the next, we're all going to get out of here. So like, I'm not ultimately worried. And it's like, you know, you kind of have a lesson with that, but... But yeah, so I also read in the same article, which I'll link in the show notes, is that the three main types, the most popular types of meditation in this segment are transcendental, Kadampa, 
and um, Shambhala. Where does Theravada fall into um, those? So those are so okay. So so I'll go into them. But um, so transcendental meditation is the Maharishi. It's the Beatles Maharishi, right? Um, right. Uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Um, and I actually was going to go to his university in, in Iowa. Iowa. I was going to go get my grad degree from it because I was so into it. So you know, I lived, I went to Grinnell college. I was just like a hop, skip and a jump from that. From Fairfield. We met some people from there. Yeah. They would come and they would put on talks or whatever. I, I love it. Was it was fascinating. Yeah. I remember one man was like, can we, can I sleep at your place or can I stay at your place? And we were like, sure. And we went, he like, we're like, gave him the couch and some bedding and we went upstairs. And then the next day, one of our roommates were like, who is that guy you let sleep over? And we're like, oh, just some visitor from that other, that meditation university next door. He's like, do you know that the dude doesn't sleep? He was in full lotus position all night. Cause I came and went and like the guy never slept. Yeah. So <laughs> I was the only reason that I did not go to Iowa after I basically, after I came back, I traveled around the world for a year and I came back and I met my husband, boyfriend at the time and like was totally going to move there because I was so fascinated by, they do this, they do, they do a bunch of studies about the effects of meditation, not only on the, the individual, but also on the community. Right. So they do that square root of 2% thing where if you get the square root of 2% of the population, which is not that many people for the entire world, it's like 8,000 something. If you get that many people to meditate on a certain thing it or in a certain thing, it actually changes. They're, they're trying to prove, and I think that they have like, you know, loosely proven, I don't know how strong it is, but that it actually decreases violence. Um, it decreases crime. It, it, it like, you can get all these different outcomes that you're looking for by doing that, by basically putting everyone's mind into it. And this is a place where you get paid to meditate. So in Fairfield, Iowa, they have these two massive pagodas. They have one for men and one for women. And you actually log in, right? Like you actually like, you're like, you clock in and then you go and you do the yogic flying transcendental meditation. And so Luke actually, my husband was like really brave enough to like go in and actually see the yogic flying. And I saw it. They're like hopping on their knees. They are. They're like, hop, they're in Lotus and they're like, they hop up and down on these mattresses, which is in that, that pagoda. Anyway, that's really making a trite comment on transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation is fundamentally mantra meditation, right? Which is kind of one of the big categories of different types of mindfulness meditation that you can get into. It is Hindu in origin and not Buddhist because a lot of the fact, because it, it comes from a mantra and the mantra is usually in Sanskrit, which has come from Hindu. And so the idea is that you can only get transcendental meditation from someone who is a teacher of transcendental meditation. And they give you your specific mantra. And they mantra. give you your mantra and you cannot tell it. Like you go online and I've literally, I, a couple of times I've been like, give me an example of a mantra. Like I'd love to know an example of a mantra. And like no one will tell you. Do you know anyone who's done, who is a big transcendental person? Because I know one person. Do you? Yeah. My sister, she's been doing it since, I, I don't know, I want to say maybe... 10, let's say eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. She's been doing it. She was given her mantra. I always wanted her to do Vipassana like me, which is Theravada tradition, but th that's a time commitment. She yeah. was a single mother. She's been doing that. Uh, transcendental? Transcendental meditation yeah. with the mantra every morning for mm -hmm. the last eight, 10 years. She gets, she does 10 minutes, rain or shine. She does her 10 minute thing with her mantra thing. I don't even know what she's really doing in there. She has changed 
it works. Like whatever she's doing, it's wow. freaking working and it's working for her. Uh, I'm not sure it would work for me. I'm not sure I'm a mantra lady, but it's working for her and it's beautiful to see. She's, she's focused. She's happy. She's peaceful. She used to be a little, a little rocky, a little rough around the edges. She is smooth. You know, she's like polished stone now. Wow. It, it's, it's amazing. Wow. Wow. It's, uh, I, I love it anyway, just because that town, I mean, I loved the structure of the university because they did like one class a month. Like you didn't have to go and like, you know, they had kirtans. That was like their social stuff. I love kirtan. I'm just like obsessed with it. And then the whole town was just like all within this intention of, of trying to bring peace and light into the world. And I think that was amazing. That's cool. Um, so that was, that was one of the top three. So what kind of people do you think would be, a would, this type of meditation appeal to? I think, I honestly think that mantra meditation in general is very good for people who have very active minds. I also think that mantra meditation is very good for emotional processing to whatever extent, like you can use the the language to be able to do it. So if you had to kind of take a test to say like, this is what's your best meditation for? for you, right? Whenever I'm really like, whenever my mind has gone into like an obsessive state or a compulsive state, mantra is the thing that pulls me down and back into my body. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, other people will have reasons to do it. The lineage is incredibly strong. There's a lot of support for people who want to do transcendental meditation. And I think that that sort of support is very important in a lot of ways. And it's been around for a long time. Um, I mean, it's been popular for, for 70, God, no, not 70, 60 years now, um, at least in America. And so, and it's, I don't know if it's ever been called a cult, not anytime recently, right? Like in the sense of like, and the difference between a cult and anything else is just a cult has, has manipulation and negative intentions behind it. And this doesn't seem to, they just want to wake up the world and make the world happier. Yeah. They're literally just trying to, they're they're doing work on brain function and how it affects, like, it's just, it's interesting. So speaking of cults though, the second one that I'm going to talk about is, um, a cult, just uh, kidding. (laughs) It's been called a cult. It's really interesting. It's called the New Kadampa tradition. Um, so it's NKT. How do, how do we spell that? Okay. K-A-D-A-M-P-A. And I'm going to, I'm going to literally, I have to very, very strongly caveat the fact that my only exposure personally to, to Kadampa. It's got five, year, five star reviews on Yelp. <laughs> <laughs> my only, my only exposure to Kadampa is that a center was, was in the old fourth ward down the road from in Atlanta where I live where I used to live, there was a center that got put up and I, it was right next to the revolution donuts. And I was always like, oh, wow. I love those donuts. I know, so if good. you're listening and you live in Atlanta, get those revolution donuts. Yeah. That with the, with the uh, pandemic, the lines just like wrap around the block oh my now. God, it's heaven. Anyway. So the new Kadampa tradition has a bit of flack for being a cult because of the fact that there's the traditional, like revered teacher who is actually a, you know, getting sexual, um, you know, like, Wait, what? <laughs> uh, sexually abusing, you could say, because they're in a position of power. They're sexually abusing students. Who and, is this? And then... In Atlanta. No, 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 no. Oh. This is everywhere. This is the number one of the top three meditations that people are using. It's a type of mindfulness wait, meditation. what does it have to do with a leader having sex with its followers? It's not the leader. It's the... One of the second leaders was accused and basically forced to step down because he had been oh. having sex with his students... Okay. Um, and the, the leader was like, oh no, this is a blessing because you're beginning the white drops of, of enlightenment. And this is great karma to be like, you know, like that in and of itself, when you have a situation where you don't have the only text that's allowed, there is the text of the guy 
of the master. Is he a living person? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's the third Buddha. They call him the third Buddha. Okay. And you have these situations where you have corruption and you have these situations where abuse or things that would normally in this world be considered bad being said that it's actually good. And you're like, and then, and then you also have this whole situation where you can read about it, but it like basically talks about this is good karma and this is bad karma. Like if you talk bad about us, that's bad karma. You're accumulating, I'm already accumulating not bad feeling comedies. this effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I was reading about it, I was reading about, like they said something about like how you couldn't question things because that would basically lead you into a level of hell. And I was like, that sounds like Catholicism. That sounds like this kind of like savior. Let me scare you into actually Let me, keeping yeah, to your Manipulate thing. you with fear and greed to make you do what I right. want you to do. But technically all of that aside of the actual application of it, it's a mindfulness meditation, right? So it has to do with the fact that it tries to seek happy you, you you're you're basically seeking happiness by recognizing that you're empty like that you're you're basically you're mindful of the current moment now and by looking at the current moment now you stop thinking about all the other stuff what i was referencing in our last episode about this was that you know I read an article, particularly from this one woman who was talking about how she spent so much time administering and to teach the students that she just was faking being happy. Like she wasn't actually happy. She was just like, I'm happy, you know, because they really encourage faking it till you make it, which to me is not being in the present now because the present now is not always happy. Right. So. That is NKT, and to I, all I don't, I'm not feeling it, but I would love to meet someone who it's worked for them. And I would have too. a good conversation. I would. I'm too. not writing it off as culty, but because I don't know everything about it, but it seems a little I, sketchy. Yeah, I would agree. I think. I think for me, I there is such a tendency, like if you hear. Like for people who are st- so thirsty for this kind of stuff, like they're so thirsty for something different. Like it's like, and that's. I just massive amounts of people in Western culture who are just like, this world is bullshit. Like the world that we're growing up in, which we have to be consumers all the time. And we have to like pretend that we're happy and we have to think that consumerism is going to make us happy. As soon as you hear anything that's like, you can be happy by just letting it all go or something along those lines. And something from Buddhism, it's incredibly appealing and it's very easy to kind of go down a slightly different version of a good thing. And kind of end up somewhere you don't want to. And be. maybe it's exactly what people need at that time in their life. It's just not. It doesn't sound like it's for me. Yeah, I would agree. I would love to hear from an NKT person who does not think it is any of those things and and all that kind of stuff because it's right. obviously popular for a reason. So shoot us a DM on Instagram. Yeah. At this spiritual fix and let us know if you want us to interview you or just have a chat. Yeah, I'd love to do that. The next one is Shambhala. Shambhala. Um, which is also mindfulness meditation. Shambhala is not considered like there's nothing bad about it. There's nothing good about it. Like I don't, I actually don't even know the guru, but I do know that it is one of the three and it's one of the mindfulness meditations. So what I'm going to do, we've covered those three and I want to just touch on Vipassana, but we could say mindfulness, which is the moment paying attention to the present moment right? Which is watching your breath. Practically, it usually means like you're watching your breath, you're doing pranayama, or you're just like watching your thoughts. Like you're sitting and you're meditating and you're watching your thoughts. Right. Matt Kahn, which I really love, who I really love says, whatever practice you choose, it definitely has to have two things, an element of loving kindness and an element of breath work. 
because that anchors you in the now. I really just, that's just a sub note. I just really like that. I don't like no, that's great. the whole wine, watching the mind contents because you can just go anywhere in that. But like when you have that breath, that anchors you in the present moment like nothing. Yep. Yep. I agree. So speaking of breath that pres- that anchors you in the present moment, do you want to explain Vipassana since that's obviously the lineage that we came from? Yes. So I love Vipassana. It comes from the Theravada tradition in the sense that it is not, it is coming from Buddhism, but it's not, or it's coming from Buddha. So it's not Buddhism in the sense of like, if Buddha is pointing to the moon and everyone is looking at his fingers and not at the moon, like Vipassana is looking at the moon. It's not looking at, right. at, at Buddha's fingers. I hope that analogy makes sense. No, that's sense. a great that's a great analogy. And I think that they say that it's non-denominational. Non-denominational, non-worship. Mm-hmm. Like you can go there and you go to these 10 days. So basically how it works is to learn Vipassana as taught by S. N. Goenka. You take a 10-day meditation retreat in silence. I don't want to even call it a retreat. It's more like a boot camp or, or brain surgery from the inside out. It's non-denominational, which is great because there's people of all religions. You can see priests there, Catholics, monks, Jews. I mean, every religion is there because it does not go into religion at all. There's no Buddha worship. It's just like basically let's examine the contents of the mind. Let's examine how the mind works. Let's make it work better for us. And in the process, you're going to burn off Sankara, which is basically karma or impurities, which sounds esoteric. But when you go in there and you leave, it makes sense. For example, I had panic attacks before I did my first Vipassana course. I've never had a panic attack since. I had a friend who was borderline alcoholic, maybe too much alcohol. She did a course, came out, never touched alcohol again. So you go in and you come out totally changed. And the great thing about it is it's free and they will not take a donation unless you've complete the course and say it changed your life. So that's a side note. Like you just feel like there's no weird corruption going on because it's free. Yeah. Yeah. The, the only, I think, I think that it has maintained its purity to an amazing extent. I think that Given that it is relatively new, I really hope that it stays true. Because um, S. Nguyenka died, and so yeah. the fear is, well, with the main teacher being dead, what will happen? But I think he really structured it properly, and I don't think it's going to change. Yeah, I think as long as they don't keep adding precepts to it, which is one of the things. Like, Because when you first, because I, I love this, this the, I think I, t- I mentioned this this one Vipassana teacher, assistant teacher who I talked to, and he was like, he was one of the first students of Goenka, and he talked about how in the first versions of the courses, they didn't do any of the noble silence. They didn't do anything like that. They were like all just smoking and talking in the afternoon, like all the time. Like they didn't have to do any noble silence. They didn't have to abstain from eating. They didn't have to abstain from anything, but they created a structure which made it so that anybody could come in as long as they were able to, to follow the five precepts of a new student, which is, uh, you have to sleep on low, low, low and lofty beds, low, low, like non lofty beds. Oh, um, non lofty beds. No, I don't even know what a lofty you, bed is. You limit your eating afternoon. You don't harm anything, which means um, vegetarian meals. Yep. You maintain noble silence. Actually, is that even a precept? Um, and then I can't remember the other one, but I'll link to them. Uh, we'll put it in the notes. Yeah. So the noble silence is awesome though. Like just 10 days away without talking. Oh, that's amazing. It is. Uh, If that calls to you, it's a sign that you were meant to take that course. If it sounds scary, disgusting, who wants 10 days of silence? It's not for you. Yeah. I made, I made an analogy of this the other day and I think it worked really well. 
What happens when you go to a Vipassana course in noble silence? You think that not talking is hard, but you actually realize it's really, really easy. And it's actually really good because most of the time it's like, have you ever been to the seashore and you're above the, like, it's like really crowded and you're above the water and you can hear, like when you're above water, you can just hear all the yelling. Like you can hear everyone yelling and screaming and just like having a good time around you. Vipassana, when you go into noble silence, it's like going underwater, right? And so all of a sudden every voice outside becomes muted and your own thoughts become really loud, like yeah. really, really loud. So when you finally come back up to the surface, it's kind of like being completely like, a little jarring it's, after it's 10 super days. It's jarring. It's yeah. jarring, but they ease you into it because they have a day where they break the silence prior to. Right. So, so, so fundamentally what Vipassana meditation does is it first teaches you Anapana, which is a process of watching the breath. And if you're not used to meditating, this is a really, really good beginner step. I remember when I first did this, I had a really hard, hard time with quieting my mind at all or maintaining any focus or concentration. And I, I actually had to get to the point where I would like, I would watch my nose and I would watch the air coming in and out of it. And then every single time that I did that for like five breaths, I would say a word. And that word was my reward for looking at five breaths. And then eventually I like extended it to six and then to seven. And then eventually I didn't have to do the word. But that's how bad that it is, was. By the way, that is not what they teach you to do in the Vipassana course. No, no, no. But <laughs> that was just like your thing. Th no, that was totally my thing. No, that was that that was like my mind was so out of control when I went to that first Vipassana that that is what I had to do. I had I had to create a crutch. The way I thought of it was like I had to create a crutch. So if you could go five breaths without being distracted, you got to say a word in my head. I literally would just say, <laughs> "Good job." And then I would That's keep going. That's great. That is so cute. <laughs> it's kind of cute, but it's a good, what the reason I tell that is because even if you are just as bad as I would, if your oh mind God, is as dis diseased as mine was, was out of balance, was out of control, was just like a monkey mind more than you could ever imagine. It starts you off easy. And then you, you learn that for three days and then you go into the actual Vipassana meditation. And everybody has different experiences. Like Anna says that everyone's life has changed. Sometimes it's not really, or sometimes you don't even notice it or everyone just kind of has a different experience with it. Right. But, um, but it is a really, it's really popular. It's growing and it is something that is a very good primer for, it, it teaches you skills that you can use and then apply to any meditation. If you choose for some reason to stop doing Vipassana. Right. So, and the thing about it is it's applicable to everyday life. Like it doesn't teach you a mantra, which say, for example, are you really going to be saying your mantra at work? But like, I can focus on my breath while I'm driving. I can, they, it's a body scan based meditation. Like I can scan my body when I'm sitting in the doctor's office waiting for something, you know, I can, observes body sensation when I'm working. Like you can apply it to every single moment of your life. So I really like the continuity of it. I would almost say it's an art of living versus a practice in the sense that it's not isolated to just sitting on the mat every day yeah. and meditating. Like it's a practice you carry into your every, it infiltrates your entire world and your entire life. To me, it's been fundamentally the most important decision I've ever made and probably second to my children it's the greatest gift I've ever been given yeah yeah I would I would agree even though I was just thinking about it it's been 10 years since I've done a course 
which is insane. It's not been that long, has it? Yeah, since we did our we, since we did our Satipatthana Sutra course back in ten years ago. But the gift of Dhamma still keeps giving within me. I still do Vipassana all the time. Um, I don't adhere as stri- strictly to it as I used to in terms of of the precepts and the different things that you have to to do for that. But yeah, so that's Vipassana. So we've talked about mindfulness meditation, which talks about the here and the now. We've talked about mantra meditation and we've talked about Vipassana. So, which is body scanning. Which is body scanning, right? So it's looking at the sensations as they come up. All of these meditations, either like mindfulness meditation and mantra meditation are really primarily, and actually Vipassana are all kind of primarily concerned about looking at the contents of the body in particular, right? And just being still and just saying, I'm going to look inside. Other meditations that do that are, you know, there's, there's different varieties of that. So mantra meditation could also be pranayama, which is the, uh, the practice of actually controlling your breath to reach trance states and to kind of, to stimulate the alpha waves, which is what happens during meditative states is another one that's like mantra. It's kind of like, it helps you along if your mind gets really bored really easily or something like that, because it allows you to kind of go deeply into yourself, but you kind of have help getting there, right? It's like, I'm going to follow a, a dot on the wall, or I'm going to look at a flame. That's a, that's a Hindu one that they do in yoga in particular, is that they, you, you gaze at a flame in order to be able to actually get into a deeper state, right? Which mm-hmm. is like, not samadhi necessarily, but close to this like, state in which everything becomes, you know, it's, it's a trance like state that, that you can get stuck in, in a good way. Total side note. Have you read the book, the wonderful story of Henry sugar by Roald Dahl Uh -uh. in it? This man goes to India. He talks to a guru. He learns the art of like watching a flame Mm -hmm. and it's a children's story. It is the best children's story. If you want to, if you have little bodhisattva children, it's a great, great book. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think you see that. So what that does is it helps us to be able to actually see things without needing to, like, if you're just not the person who wants to, you know, watch your breath and you're having really trouble or you don't have time to go to a 10 day meditation, like you can do these other things that will help you still look inside. So then we're moving from like, let me look at the contents of my mind as they are right now, which is like what I would call those guys, whether it's pure, just like unadulterated, I'm going to look at it. Or I'm going to look at it with a little bit of help with like a mantra or Mm -hmm. pranayama or something or flame gazing. And then we go more into like the dynamic meditations, right? So that's stuff like, like, I'm going to get you to talk about dynamic meditation in a minute, but it's the ecstatic dance, anything that requires the body to move. So walking meditation, yoga is a great example. So yoga, yoga can obviously involve long periods of sitting by like sitting and, you know, doing this, but it basically asks that there is an on mat and an off mat experience and, and that, you know, you're doing practices that are facilitating your process of, of yoking yourself a union with God, right? So it's all about union with God. It's all about, okay, I'm going to use all these techniques and I'm going to do that. I'm going to make myself the clearest channel and the clearest vessel in order to be able to accept God's, to accept the experience of God within your body, right? Which is different then all those other ones, which are just telling you to look at your and look at your mind, right? Like the Buddhist ones are much more about like, let me look at myself as I am. And I'm not expecting some higher power to come in and help me. Right. Yoga and other dynamic meditations are basically saying, um, th- there is a higher power that I want to become open to. Can you explain dynamic meditation in particular? I feel like that's right. a bit of a hybrid of a couple of different ones. But. Right. So, well, I spent, I spent about two years at the Osho ashram in India and Osho taught, a lot of different meditations. And he said, which I love, he said that 
most minds are not ready to like sit on a mat and just do a body scan or just focus on breathing. There's so much pent up suppressed emotion in the human body because of society. Yes. And in order to get your mind to the point where you can even sit quietly, you have got to go through catharsis. You have got to throw out and expunge yourself of a lot of, um, repressed emotion. So dynamic meditation is one of them. He has dynamic, he has Kundalini. He's got all these different ones. If you go on YouTube or to the website, you can find them all. And they're great for a novice meditator, someone who's really intimidated by sitting on a mat. They deal a lot with catharsis, yelling, screaming, dancing, letting yourself move wherever, whatever position you want, jumping in a way where you're hammering a certain chakra uh, energetically shaking in a way that will help facilitate Kundalini movement. Mm -hmm. So his are more, his are not necessarily like the end goal. Like, like I'm going to be a great meditator one day and I'm going to do dynamic meditation every morning. No, like it's more like, okay, I'm curious about meditation. I think I don't have it in me to sit on a mat for an hour. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to sit and recite a mantra for 10 minutes, but jumping up and down and crying and screaming and thrashing around and like ex- just getting these pent up emotions inside me is what I want. Then it's a great way to go. He was the first one I started with uh, when I was learning to meditate and I feel like it was great. I just, you remove a lot of unconscious resistance with those meditations. Yeah. And I, and I really appreciate that because for me, the way that I see the structure of the world is that there is the divine masculine, which is looking at the contents of the mind, right? Just like going very, very deeply into your own mind, into your own body, into what is sitting there naturally and kind of using the mind as the tool to do that, whether it's by focusing the mind or concentrating the mind. And then there's this totally divine feminine aspect, which is that you have an emotional motor in your body and that emotional motor is stalled or backed up for a lot of people. And therefore you can do stuff to physically move your body to be able to like actually unblock it, unblock it so that then you can go into the mind if you choose to, or you can just keep going on the emotional motor side because that is the divine feminine has a totally amazing aspect to it as well. And I think Vipassana is more of the masculine. It is. However, in once you start to really get into it. I think by like the eighth day of the course, it's very feminine. Actually. I feel Mm -hmm. like you do pull up and remove a lot of deep, deep, deep stuff in the body. Yeah. A lot of the subconscious stuff, but you're still using the mind to do it as opposed to using the body to do it. Right. That's true. And I think that that's the biggest difference is that recognizing that the body is a way to the divine as well, as much as we you know, are kind of stuck in bodies or some people like that's kind of my view, but so that is, that is kind of what I think, especially with yoga. And I think that's why yoga is so popular. The reason that I think that yoga is so popular is because of the fact that it deals with this fact that people have a lot of pent up emotions and they need to be able to do it. And, And the mind body connection that gets created in yoga, it makes it so that you're actually able to facilitate and, and siphon off that excess energy that builds up emotionally in your body. And, you know, you go through you go to a Kundalini yoga class. Oh my God. Like there's like, and the ones that I've been in, everyone's like breaking down like all the time. It's like they're physically moving their body and they are physically, and they're emotionally releasing pent up energy that's just stuck in their body. And, you know, the holotropic breathing is a great example of that as well, right? It's something in which you're actually processing the emotions in your body. It's a type of meditation that helps you to get that emotional motor running. And then there's this last, the last kind of category is what I call of meditation is 
the visualization and the kind of journey meditation. I, I never consider those meditations. I know they call them that. Like we're going on a meditation. Imagine you're on a beach. Like I always just in my world, I categorize that as visualization. I don't see that as meditation. To me, meditation's about being in the now. I guess I'm a little am I a little biased or well, it's prejudiced? really interesting that you say that because I went through the exact same journey myself because after I came on a beach <laughs> <laughs> I was in my mind on a beach. It's a very good point because when you get to this kind we call it meditation because you're sitting on the ground and you're like in your head, but you're actually going somewhere. When I first came out of Vipassana, I was like so strongly like the like kind of after I I moved away and I moved, I was living, um, on the land of a, um, of a medicine woman. She was my teacher at the time. I was really, really strict. And I was like, this is a meditation. Like this visualization stuff is not meditation. Like I can't, I can't abide by that because what I do of like austere, like sittings of strong determination where I can't move a muscle for an hour, that is meditation. Like this is just like airy, fairy, fluffy new age stuff. Right. But then I started to recognize that it was just a third type. I really just think of it as a third type because what it does is it allows you to penetrate the subconscious, the unconscious parts of you by traveling in your mind to another place, right? It's an, it, what I call the inner realms. It's like, imagine your body is an external thing. Your mind sits within your body and then within your mind are inner realms that you can go to process emotionally and other subconscious things. It's more of a symbolic place. It's like a symbolic meditation or something. I I don't know. I don't even know about that because, okay, so Rudolf Steiner um, is a great example of, uh, he did anthroposophy and anthroposophy, I can't even actually say it. Rudolf Steiner and theosophist in general, they were very much in favor of this idea that there are higher worlds that you can go to, to help you process your stuff. And they don't exist in a human body and they exist within your minds, but they're shared. They're communal places. Okay. Right. And so the whole idea is that you can get into a trance state. It's kind of like, this is the place you go to when you get into a trance. Like once you kind of quiet the mind enough and once you kind of get the emotions kind of under control enough, you can go to these places as a destination and they're still in you. They still are you but they're just giving you consciousness. They're, they're giving conscious form in the form of imagination, but like they're, they're an imagination is the wrong word, but in, in the form of visualization, they're giving conscious form to your subconscious issues. Right. Yeah. So I have a meditation where I can see a demon sitting in front of me, or I can see a whatever, or I go to a planet or I do whatever. And you could say that's not real. You could say that's in my imagination, but when I come out of it, I feel better. And I feel like I've resolved something. Right. And the brain probably doesn't know the difference. I don't, I doesn't know the difference. Right. So if you want to expand your playground of meditation beyond just your physical body and beyond just your mind and the contents of your mind, like the contents of your mind as they are, then you go to these higher worlds. I think a great takeaway from all of this is that people interested in meditation have a lot of different choices you, yep. just because you go to a meditation class or you find an app on your phone or you try something it doesn't work for you it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that another one won't you know it's like food for every different person there's different flavors that appeal to you and just keep trying and 
I remember SN Goenka in the Vipassana course says, if you'd go and, and dig a hole here and you dig, 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 and then you get bored and you move over here and you dig a hole, dig a hole, and then you go find another place to dig a hole, you're never going to hit water. So he's like, in the beginning of your, your journey, like you might dig a few holes trying to find the right hole. Mm-hmm. But once you find one that works for you, dig and dig and stay on it and you will hit water. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's a great example, like flirt, flirt with different techniques and find one that works for you. And when you find the one that works, stay on it and go deeper. Yeah. Yeah. And And you'll hit the water and you'll hit the water. And ultimately I think that if you go into a, like if, if you're the type of person who can use an app to be able to get into meditative state, then that's fantastic. That's exactly what you need. But also recognize that there are different varieties of emotional processing meditation, right? So there are different things in which if you feel like you're just too jittery or you just have too many things on your mind or you keep getting with those what-if scenarios, like sometimes that's an overactive mind. It is an overactive mind, but sometimes an overactive mind is stimulated by stuck emotions in my experience. So I've worked with a lot of people And the first thing we always do is we try and stimulate and start the emotional motor because once that happens then the mind quiets because it's not stimulated by something that is dying for your attention. Right. And I think if people need that, like we're in a pandemic, so, you know, you can't go to meditation centers as easily, but there's, you know, you hear the term life coach. What's a life coach? Life coaches are people that can work with you or healers or shamans, like all of that category of people are people who are, have, have been on this journey. They've tried a thousand things. They can meet you and know it works for you. So some people could potentially, you want to learn to meditate. Well, book a session with a life coach or a shaman or someone even on a zoom call and they can help guide you. Like what's going to be the best tool for you. Yep. Yep. And I think ultimately, I think if there is one thing that I could say that like, that to keep in mind, like, cause we did kind of talk about the idea that people who are on spiritual paths can be vulnerable to things that may not be the best for them. Of course, then again, I'm just like, well, that's probably just in your karma. But the idea is that dig a hole till you find water, but also recognize that if every other hole is then blocked off to you, like if there's, if there's an encouragement for rigidity and saying that this is the only way, that is just bullshit. Like you just, you just, yeah, just stay away from that. From red flag. Yeah. It's a total red flag. If someone says this is the way, and this is the only way, and you have to do it this way. And this teacher is the only buddy who knows it. And this teacher has figured it out. This teacher has figured it out and no yeah. other teacher has figured it out. You can't read anything else or you can't do anything else. Like red flag. It's a red flag. And the more adaptable that we are, the more, the, the less rigid that we are, the less rigid our mind will be and the more pliable and the more able that we are to actually like help our minds. Like I, I remember I had a boyfriend. This is my final story. One of my boyfriends when I was in my twenties for a long time, he, he got sick. He got cancer when he was like 20 and he would, and he went to an Ayurvedic diet and he went into an Ayurvedic diet and he started taking herbs and he was able to like basically put his cancer into remission himself with that experience, right? With changing his diet, making sure that he was like eating for his doshas, which we could talk about at a later time, but he was basically following a a very strict like Indian medicine diet. And what he recognized was that his mind was becoming so rigid around the principles of it, thinking that it was going to save his life, 
that if he if he did if he ate a single thing that wasn't in his diet or that wasn't good for him or if he missed a single ritual or if he did anything like this he was holding on to it so tightly to save his life that he started to recognize that that was the disease that was coming out right do you see what i'm saying like in the sense that like the rigidity the need to keep to it and the inability to be vulnerable to any change or any deviation thinking that it was going to kill him was almost as bad as the actual disease itself. Right. And so as soon as he learned to kind of relax and just be like, it's okay. Like I can have a piece of cake this one time and, and I'm okay with it because I'm adaptable. I don't have to be this rigid. It's not going to, it's not going to kill me if I do this, that that adaptability is incredibly important aspect of any Right. Any acceptance. spiritual practice. Acceptance, yeah. There you go. Back to acceptance. Back to acceptance. All right. Humility, acceptance, um, gratitude. gratitude. Done. Done. <laughs> what are you going to talk about next time? Next episode, I will be discussing like three different books that I read over the pandemic about how to enhance and improve your communication with your romantic partner. Awesome. So looking forward to that. All right. See you later. See ya. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of This Spiritual Fix. Tune in next time when we go through different types of communication with loved ones. And be sure to like us on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. uh, Do whatever you want on Instagram. Hopefully it involves us. And be sure to send us um, some ratings and reviews on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much and have a great day. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer... One girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.